Hi, my name is Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It is John 2, 1 through 12, and it can be found on page 834 in the Pew Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of God. Imagine for a moment your ideal party. Maybe uh, if you're a child or an adult, this might be a good opportunity to draw a picture. Where are you at this party? Are you at a friend's house? Maybe a nice restaurant? A sports game? A laser tag arena? A fire out back? Who's there? Friends? Family? People you haven't met yet? Is it a big group? Small group? What are you eating? Calamari? Filet mignon, pepperoni and bacon pizza, Lucky Charms cereal, would have been great for me as a kid, maybe today too, a big brat maybe, creme brulee. What are you drinking? Soda? Coffee? A glass of wine? Maybe just water. Are you playing a game? Are you steeped in good conversation? Where are you celebrating? What are you celebrating? A birthday, a holiday, a wedding, perhaps. Or maybe you're just celebrating the fact that you can celebrate. We were made to celebrate. And we long for it. And in the gospel, specifically here in John 2, Jesus offers us, offers you a real reason to do so. In the gospel, Jesus prepares a feast for us. The only feast that truly satisfies. He prepares that feast for you and serves it to you today. A feast of three things. Extravagant blessing unexpected grace, and eternal joy. 
That's what we're going to see here in John 2. Before we jump in, let's pray. Father, we turn to you and bow, submitting ourselves to what you have to say to us this morning. Speak, O Lord, clearly. Draw near to those of us who are far from you. Humble those of us who are proud. Encourage those of us who are discouraged. Wake those of us who are spiritually sleepy. And lift up our heads to see you in all of your beauty, tenderness, and might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't yet, turn to John 2. And we're going to see here, number one, that Jesus comes to bring extravagant blessing. If you remember in chapter 1, the final verse of chapter 1, verse 51, you can read it there. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What comes next? What do you expect when heaven comes to earth? Jesus arrives at a party. Heaven is breaking into the world. The kingdom of God is coming to earth in Jesus Christ. And we see it start at a wedding celebration, a feast. Read these first three verses of John 2 with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, when the, ran, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. As quickly as we see Jesus at this wedding celebration, we hear they've got a problem. My wife and I had a problem arise at our wedding. We had planned our wedding in June in Minnesota, way up north, thinking the weather would be wonderful perfect, only to find that it was 95 degrees, a sunny, hot day on our wedding day, and on the second floor of an unair-conditioned barn, it quickly became much hotter. We had a problem. Our friends and family were being slow-baked in a beautifully steamy barn of antique chairs and assigned seating. We felt terrible for our guests. We had to do something about it. We felt terrible until we solved the problem by leading an exodus to the front lawn where we spent the rest of the evening in a much cooler setting. It was wonderful. The problem in John 2 is quite different, and actually it's much more severe. They have no more wine. A wedding party would have lasted up to a week in this culture. And the bridegroom was obligated to prepare enough food and enough drink to serve the guests. Guests expected a feast. And to run out of wine meant social shame. 
and humiliation. Some have said that there were even instances of lawsuits that were filed by disgruntled guests. So glad that didn't happen to my wife and I. The threat of disappointment here loomed over the wedding reception. Happiness hung by a thread. Is your happiness hanging by a thread this morning? Maybe it's not. Maybe you're happy. You're grateful. You're pleased in life right now. What a gift. But I wonder if some of you are running on empty. Exhausted, discouraged. You find your joy fickle. It waxes and wanes. And in the words of the mother of Jesus, you've got no more wine. You long to be filled. You long for joy. And and you even might long for not the frothy kind, but the deep and wide and lasting kind. Jesus can give it to you. But Jesus responds to his mother's pleading in a peculiar way. Woman, what does this have to do with you with me? My hour has not yet come. What does he mean by calling her woman and why does he do so? Would have been very inappropriate for a son to call his mother woman. No, Jesus is not saying woman in a gruff southern accent and asking her to make him a chicken sandwich. It's kinder than that. Dear woman, why are you bringing me into this? But Jesus isn't shooing away a nagging mom. He's establishing a new kind of relationship with her. Making it clear that he's first and foremost submitted to his father in heaven. But why does he seem to deny Mary's request only to go ahead and perform the sign? Jesus was resisting the nature of what Mary was asking for. It's almost as if Mary is subtly seeing if Jesus would show his glory publicly to the whole party. Later in John, we see that very same thing with his disciples. They ask him to come up to a feast, and he says no. And then he goes up to the feast. They had wanted him to display his glory publicly. And he says, dear woman, it's not time for that yet. Instead, he was going to perform a private sign. A sign only for a few, only for his disciples and a few of the servants. Read with me in verse 6 all the way up to verse 10. We get a window into this sign, and it is magnificent. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine 
until now. Jesus goes all out here. This is extravagant. He sends the servants to these stone jars, and we read that these jars held approximately 20 to 30 30 gallons each. Now, if you do the math there, altogether, that's somewhere in between 120 and 180 gallons total. And the servants filled them to the brim. And Jesus turns that water into wine. That is a lot of wine. A ridiculous amount of wine. I did a few calculations. That's the equivalent of 750 bottles of wine. Heaven's coming down, and that's what Jesus is doing. What do we make of that? Well, first, like me, you may sincerely ask, wait, that's got to be a typo, John. If it seems ridiculous, that's because it is. And it isn't the cheap stuff that you might buy at the fine wine and spirits down the street. It's the good stuff. It's choice wine. The master of the feast, or, or that the host, the head waiter, is astounded at its quality and the peculiarity that it has come out so late in the party. And now, just for a moment, it needs to be acknowledged that in this room, there's a, inevitably a wide range of feelings and convictions about alcohol. Whether it is right or wrong for Christians to partake in it, whether it is wise for you to drink of it, maybe there are real reasons that that is not wise. We know that Paul makes it abundantly clear that drunkenness is out of the question. But we do see instances in Scripture in which wine is enjoyed in good and holy and right ways. Psalm 104, 15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of man. In Proverbs 3, verses 9 to 10, we hear, What the teacher says about those who walk in the way of wisdom. Honor the Lord with your wealth, he says. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. But I don't think we should be drawing conclusions from this passage about whether disciples of Jesus should or should not drink alcohol. This story is not primarily about the wine itself, but what the wine means. In verse 11, we read, this is the first of his signs. All throughout the Gospel of John, that's the word that is used regarding what other Gospels talk about, miracles. John talks about signs, meaning what Jesus does is not necessarily the point. It points to something true of him and what he's come to do beyond what the sign is. We see that here. Points to a deeper meaning. In this story, and in general, in that time, wine was a symbol of celebration and blessing and joy. Jesus is demonstrating here that the kingdom of God brings extravagant 
blessing above and beyond what we need. Jesus is bringing heaven on earth. And he isn't a killjoy or a curmudgeon or a critical cynic or stoic who smugly stands on the fringe of a party, unwilling to enter into the joy of it all. Consider, Jesus is at a party. Did Jesus dance? Did he laugh? Did he mingle? Did he savor good food? I'd venture to say probably. In John 2, we see Jesus join the joy of the feast. Even more, he keeps it going. Bringing the people extravagant blessing. And he is here this morning to pour out blessing upon you. And I wonder how you hear that, though. Are you grateful? Are you cynical? Maybe you're confused by that promise. And maybe if you were honest, deep down, you really don't see your need for abundance from Christ. Maybe because you already live in abundance, as many of us do. Many of us have more than we could ever ask for. Though we may not realize it, we have a car in the parking lot or on the street outside. We have a home filled with with full closets and full cupboards. We have phones and laptops, friendships and family. We have a, a smorgasbord of entertainment at our fingertips. Many of you can look out on your lives and relative to so many in the world, if you have the eyes to see it, your life is a feast, an abundant life. And yet, to take it one step deeper, if you're honest, though you have the world, some of you, some of us are still empty perpetually disappointed again and again. You have so much, but it's not enough. And even more, when you get more stuff, it almost makes it worse. Why? The problem is that we look to what we have to give us the joy that we long for. A joy that only Jesus can provide. We lust after the things that we don't have. And when we don't get them, we're continually let down. Even as we turn to Jesus and and even as he fills us up, maybe on a Sunday morning we fly to other feasts that leave us emptier than before. We fly to self-made wells that hold no water has been talked about earlier. Why would we do such a thing? Maybe it's because we just find Jesus boring. Because he doesn't feed us the way that the world does. Not as tangibly, not as on demand, not as quickly. Doesn't make us feel good in the way that we want to feel good. And so we run away from him. 
just as we sit down and take a glass, take a drink, we run. And maybe you escape into fantasy worlds because the real one makes you sad. Maybe you scroll through meaningless photos and videos on social media because it distracts you from the weight of your responsibilities to the Lord and others in your life. Maybe you eat food, real food, to feel the taste of something delightful other than the bland and boring day-to-day of life. Maybe you pride yourself on your accomplishments to make you feel like you matter when really you feel small. In so many ways, we run from Christ's extravagant blessing. We dishonor him. We reject him. It's insane. Because we, even as we prepare our own feasts, they only lead us into famine. And yet, what does he do? What does he do? He doesn't respond the way we might expect. He gives extravagant blessing, and he gives unexpected grace. Take a step back with me for a moment and think about this story. Think about the role that the guests have in the story. We don't hear much about them. The closest we get is, is this kind of uh, the, the master of the feast who's speaking on behalf of the guests in some way, but we don't hear about the guests very much evident they don't know what's happening. They're like patrons in a restaurant that are clueless to some massive problem that's happening in the back kitchen. Like in Ratatouille, for example. They haven't asked for anything, and they certainly have not earned anything. They're grateful recipients, passive recipients even of the gracious blessing of God. And that's the gospel. (laughs) The heart of Jesus is surprising favor for those who have not worked for it. And that grace of Jesus changes everything. In this sign, Jesus is doing something profound, something beyond just offering extravagant blessing. He's bringing something new into the equation. And when it comes to the signs that Jesus performs, it's not just important to pay attention to what is done, but how it is done. Jesus turned water into wine to bring that blessing, and he did so in a unique way. We read in verse 6 that these stone jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. These were not drinking vessels. It's a peculiar way to create wine. They were sacred. They were set apart for adherence to the law. Guests would have drawn out water from them to wash their hands as they entered the feast. And here, Jesus is making wine. What do you make of the fact that Jesus is using these jars for this sign? Jesus turns these jars, which were previously agents of the law, to bring cleansing into agents of grace that bring blessing. 
Water removes filth. Wine imparts gladness. Again, Jesus is changing something big here. At least he's showing that he is going to change something significant here. He's announcing quite subtly that he has come to transform the way we relate to God. For he is God in the flesh. It's a sign, not an end in and of itself, but what does this sign point us toward? The key to the sign is in the words of Jesus in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. What is this hour? This phrase appears over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. My hour has not yet come. My hour is coming. My hour will come. And continually, it signifies the hour that Christ will be glorified. It signifies the hour that that Christ will display his full radiance, all that he is, and do what he came to do. Ultimately, in his death and resurrection. And it is on the cross that we see the meaning of this sign most clearly. Throughout the Bible, as we've already talked about, wine's a symbol of God's blessing, but it's also often a symbol of God's wrath. God's wrath is talked about as a cup of staggering, the kind of cup that Jesus was forced to drink, that he chose to drink. It's not just a symbol of celebration, but of condemnation. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of wrath that we might drink the cup of grace. Jesus was banished from the feast of heaven that you might have a seat at his table, that you might taste and see that the Lord is good for free. We read in John 1, verses 16 to 17, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No longer must you come with sacrifices of food and drink to get a seat at the Father's table. You need only to return from your self-made feasts and come with your empty cup. Turn off your phone. Come back to reality. Put down your work. Stop trying to control your life. Get over your need for praise. Because there's an open invitation to the party of God. And it's going to be better than yours. You don't need to pay for it. You don't need to purify yourself before coming. Jesus already has handled it. He has prepared the meal, poured the wine, and opened the doors. You might be listening, though, and thinking, okay, Jesus has come to bring this blessing and grace, a celebratory feast. Whoop-de-doo, you might be thinking. What does that mean For me, when my life feels much more like a TV dinner than a feast. 
You're telling me to receive the lavish blessing of Jesus, and I'm starving here. My life feels less like a feast and more like a funeral. The love of my life is gone, for example. I just had the joy of a positive pregnancy test, only to cry tears of grief, not joy, at the ultrasound. I'm at war with my spouse. I was just diagnosed with a mental illness or a terminal illness. Maybe you're burdened with dreams that have died. You stare at the extravagance of the gospel. And you are not driven to delight, but despair. Will Jesus ever restore me? Will he ever grant me the blessing I long for, or the blessing I lost? What if I look out on my life and I don't see a feast? I don't have a whole lot. My hour has not yet come, he says. And as his hour approached, Jesus ate another meal. He ate another meal with his closest friends, his disciples. And in the Lord's Supper, he blessed them with bread and wine, a feast, one of blessing, yes, but also one of impending betrayal, disappointment, and inevitably death. The Gospel of John starts with a feast, but it ends with a funeral. And on the cross, Jesus doesn't just drink the cup of God's wrath. wrath. He pours his out. In John 19, 28, while he is on the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. My wine has run out, he's crying out from the cross. He understands your losses, your pain, your grief. He's carried the weight of it all. He's not oblivious to your dried and leaky cup, but drawing near to you in your emptiness, that ache in your heart that longs for a life that reflects this festal joy. He's come not to give you more stuff, but to pour himself into your life. And those disappointments, those losses, those things that lead you to despair, they're not the end of your story. In the same way that the grave was not the end of his. In his resurrection, in his ascension to the Father's throne, Jesus has gone to prepare a future celebration. A future feast, a better one, one that will never end, and one that cannot be ruined by the brokenness of the world. Though we have received a taste now of the extravagance of Christ's grace, it is just a foretaste of coming attractions. Hear these words of Isaiah as we move toward the table this morning, as he speaks of what is to come for God's people. Specifically, when God comes and makes all things new. This is Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. Hear these words. 
on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken and what he says he will do. Jesus doesn't necessarily offer you freedom from the pain of the present but he promises the full freedom of resurrection in the future, a freedom that comes in his presence In Christ, there is always life on the other side of death. Always. There's always a feast after the funeral. And it is in that hope that we're saved. And it's in that hope that we can celebrate as we wait. Even as we war with our own depravity and despair, we have hope, abundant hope. That just as Christ tasted life on the other side of death, we will be raised with him and have a seat at his forever table. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to go to a table, this table, that the Lord invites us to. So would the band come back up? And as we do so, it's often that that we come and and we reflect on, on what Our sin cost the Lord, what he has done, his death. And yet I just want to encourage us and and compel us. We come this morning, we come to celebrate with joy for the life that was purchased here through this table. Though this table is a table of sacrifice, it's a table of joy, gratitude, and expectation because We're not just looking back to what Christ has done. We're looking forward. We're looking forward to what Isaiah speaks of when Christ will vanquish death. As we eat of the bread and the cup, we do so in eager anticipation of the day when we will live face to face with God forever. And so if you are serving the elements, would you come up now? I think we have a few people that are going to serve. And just a few notes of instructions. After you receive the bread and the cup, uh, return to your seats, and we'll take those things together. Uh, If you are unable to come to the front, we will find you and serve you in your seat.